I invite you to turn to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. We're going to be giving our attention to chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. One of the reasons that we, as the elders of Emmaus Road Church, chose to make our way through the book of Romans at this point in time is is on account of the the ever-deepening division and polarization we, we all see happening in our land. I think probably to one degree or another, most everyone has some measure of concern about the increasing level of animosity and belligerence and violence over things like race and gender and politics and justice. And and what has only intensified the unsettledness of it all is that this division is also, um, it's growing within the evangelical reformed tribe, if you will, in which we, your elders, locate ourselves. It It wasn't that long ago that we would find ourselves feeling profoundly united with a good many others on things such as historical Christian orthodoxy, you know, the, the, the inerrancy of God's words, penal substitutionary atonement, the significance of expository preaching, and these classic Reformation convictions, you know, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to God's word alone, to the glory of God alone. Our certainty regarding hills on which we would die, I think I speak for all, the, all of us, we, it remains stable. You know, we, we know we're not liberals. We know, we know we're not into prosperity gospel. We're not into seeker sensitive. We're not, certainly not revisionist on sexual ethics. We're just not watered down compromisers, you know. But, but, but for the past 10 years, and, and I think this is really actually quite remarkable, we have felt as though we were part of a growing enlarging wave of pastors and churches crossing denominational lines that, you know, where we could share these convictions. And then came the coronavirus and the death of George Floyd and the 2020 presidential election. And now, even some from whom we have benefited so much in terms of this gospel resurgence seem, seem fractured by things like critical race theory or Trump or police shootings or whatever. And these old alliances and networks that, um, that we once felt so at home in, uh, it feels like they're coming apart. And they're reforming along new lines. And and the new lines are not doctrinal, at least in the most classical sense. Rather, they seem to reflect more of the cultural mood, seem to reflect more of a political impulse, or just plain reactivity. And and this is my own personal perspective. 
perspective on it or opinion on it, if you will. But, but I, my sense is that this reactivity, this reaction leading to these relational realignments are, are, are rising to a great degree from one's own personality type. <laughs> so here's, here's what you see. I, at least this is what I see. You, you, get, you got some that respond with contrition, you know, calling the church to corporate brokenness. And you got some who respond with compassion, calling the church to sh- just show more of the love of Jesus. And you got others that respond with, you know, carefulness, calling the church to remain tethered to their theological traditions. And then you've got still others who respond with courage, you know, and they're calling the church to be more aggressive and fight. Fight, fight, fight. <laughs> now we know that Paul's aim in his letter to the Romans was to mold a united spiritual community that would engage in faithful and, God willing, fruitful frontier mission. And and I trust that it has been apparent as we've just walked through these first three chapters that Paul's conviction. Paul's conviction regarding the foundation for such Christian unity and the fuel for such Christian mission rises from this proclamation and upholding of Christ-centered gospel doctrine. The the, the one reality that just flattens the, the field for every human being and lays the foundation for united um, a united missional church is the fact that we are all sinners we're all separated from god and our universal need is for a savior and what paul is about to show us is that we're all saved we're all justified the same way and further all humankind has always been saved and justified the same way. God is one, and God has one, and only one way of justifying sinners. And it makes no difference if you live prior to Christ in Old Testament times or after Christ in New Testament times. It makes no difference if you're a Jew or a Gentile, red, yellow, black, and white, male, female, rich, poor, young, old, Salvation has been and is, and until the last day, will be accomplished by God's grace, working, working, and through our response to God's gracious work as we turn and entrust ourselves to Christ Jesus alone. And that, at least in part, is the reason that we felt compelled to draw your attention to God's word through Paul in his letter to the Romans. So, let's carry on. And I invite you again to follow along. I'm going to read this morning now from Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. I invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? 
For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is God's holy and faith-begetting word. Let's, Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you have communicated yourself in this text. We ask that by the work of your spirit and for the glory of your great name, you would would so work among us. You would bring such illumination that we might behold you, that we might see what you've done. And we might feel what you have done. And that our hearts might burn within us. And that you would work in such a way that you, you're, you create, you generate a fruit, a fruitfulness among the relationships of our people that looks powerfully like Christ in his humility. And that you'd bear the fruit of great zeal, great passion for your great 
name to be known and worshipped and praised among all the nations. It's a big thing to ask for. And we trust, Lord, that it is this big thing that you are about. So we, we rest in you to accomplish this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe be seated. You know, one of the, the most remarkable things uh, about the text that I just read is that it appears, <laughs> it appears that the greatest obstacle to the unity and the mission of the Roman church is dear old Father Abraham. It's just mind-blowing. It's remarkable because, as Paul's about to argue, the way that God saved Abraham is precisely the same way that God saves everybody, anyone. And the manner by which God intended to make Abraham a blessing and spiritual father of all the nations is the same manner by which he can be we can be a spiritual blessing to the nations. And so it, it's, it's rather ironic, is it not, that the debate over how Abraham was saved would stand in the way of a united and mission-oriented Roman church. But it's on account of the Jewish notion that Abraham was saved on the basis of his works. And in, in particular, his conformity to the rite of circumcision. That the, the practical effect on the Roman church was division. In other words, to be on God's team, you had to get yourself onto Abraham's team. And in order to get yourself onto Abraham's team, you had to, guess what? Be circumcised. And keep the Old Testament law. And, and this sent a message loud and clear that the Jews had religious bragging rights over, everybody else, over everyone else. And it was the Jews who claimed this moral, moral spiritual high ground and superiority. And it was this manifestation of religious pride that, no surprise here, not only unraveled unity, but undercut fruitful mission through this church. So Paul introduces the issue. Look again, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. And if he's got something to boast about, <laughs> well then we all better line up and get on board or there's just, you know, we're out of it. You often hear us say that gospel doctrine plus time plus safety equals or engenders a gospel culture. That is, sowing the seeds of gospel doctrine, in this case, the doctrine of justification by grace through faith in Christ, sowing that seed Sowing it patiently, without pressure, heavy-handedness, or poking somebody in the chest. In time, in God's time, we trust will, and we've seen this happen over and over and over again. It bears the fruit of a gospel culture. That is a culture with distinct character traits like humility, 
and gratitude and joy and generosity and servanthood and spiritual community and God-honoring obedience. And this, loved ones, is, again, what we would describe as the functional centrality of the gospel. That is, gospel doctrine is not simply only a matter of information, of course it is that, but it's more than that. The gospel is a matter of transformation. It functions. It works. It gets things accomplished. And according to Romans chapter 4 verses 1 through 12, what we see is how the gospel can and does produce two crucial aspects of a gospel culture. One, it engenders unity in the church. And two, it fuels the mission of the church. How? How does the gospel get these things done? How does, how does first of all, the gospel engender this humility, this, this humility that creates unity? Maybe more specifically, how does the doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone, which Paul is so riveted in in these opening chapters, how does that produce this fruit of humility? Paul is aiming to, you know, he's aiming to mold a united spiritual community and he's been laying the axe to the, to the Romans Specifically, the Roman Jews' religious and spiritual arrogance. Pride is at the root of all disunity. For pride is the root of all sin. And having explained the gospel of the doctrine of justification, this gospel doctrine of justification, Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 27, then... In other words, in light of this doctrine, what becomes of our boasting? In light of this doctrine of justification by grace, through faith, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? And the answer is, yes, of the Gentiles also. So, how does the gospel function to produce that? To produce this fruit of genuine spiritual Humility. And here we have a little case study that Paul works out for us through dear old father Abraham. And he does so by showing us, first of all, that salvation is based not on works, but God's verdict. It's not a matter of works, it's a matter of a verdict. And Paul illustrates the truth by pointing to the example of the salvation of Abraham. You see, for the Jews, 
Abraham was their ethnic and spiritual forefather, and it was common knowledge that Abraham came from this long line of idolaters. His family of origin worshipped the moon. Outdoors folk, I guess. Loved being in the boundary waters where it was real clear. Um, but, he, but he turned from moon worship to serve the living God when he obeyed the Lord's call to leave his home in Chaldea and, and resettle in the land of Canaan. Now, now what's, what's also clear is that according to that narrative in Genesis chapters 12 through 22, Abraham in no way became a sinless saint upon responding to God's call. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The, the Genesis account... Genesis account draws particular attention to various instances of Abraham's really quite notorious lapses into great sin. Again, and again, and again. But nevertheless, in spite of these lapses, Paul argues in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, What does the scripture say? And then he quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the Jews had an interpretation of Genesis 15 verse 6. According to the Jews, Abraham was saved according to his works. And and Paul communicates that understanding. He he registers it... um, that this under, Jewish understanding of Abraham's salvation in verse 4. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That's how the Jews interpreted Abraham's salvation. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And according to this view, Abraham's salvation came to him as, you know illustrative of wages, you know, that God as an employer paid him, Abraham, the worker, in compensation for quote-unquote needful service rendered. And Paul just flat out rejects this perspective. Far from being an employee earning wages from God, Abraham didn't work to be saved. His behavior merited no favor from God. Rather, Abraham trusted God and relied on God to work for him in forgiving all his ungodliness. So look at verse 4 again. Now, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, to the one who works, his wages are counted as earnings. And earnings, that's a totally different thing than a gift. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, and this is the crucial, crucial phrase, is counted as righteousness. Or counted as if he were righteous. So in other words, the the condition that Abraham met in order to be forgiven It had nothing to do with working to earn a wage, but simply to believe 
the promise that God had made to him to make his offspring into a people, a people that would be, they'd be protected by God. They'd become a great nation. They would impart divine blessings to all tribes, languages, and nations on earth. And, and the wording here is very crucial. Eight times Paul uses the word translated, at least in the ESV, the word translated counted. It's a legal term. It's, it's the word that the judge uses when pronouncing the verdict of the court. I find you guilty. Or I count you innocent. Or I count you as righteous. And God's verdict of righteousness in Abraham's case and in everyone's case, that is a gift. It's a gift because none is righteous. It is received like a verdict in a moment. It's a pronouncement. And in verses 6 through 8, Paul leaves no doubt about where he's going with this, what it means. He says, David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. It's shocking, is it not? That God justifies not the righteous, but the ungodly. It's, it's disequilibrating. <laughs> Wait, what? It's the ungodly that are justified. Abraham was forgiven. Abraham was pronounced righteous by God despite his ongoing falling short of sinlessness. And loved ones, just listen. But Paul's aim in just whacking at this root of self-righteousness is to make these people recognize and own up to the truth that the basis of their salvation is not the works of righteousness that they have done. The basis of their salvation is the verdict that God declares. There's a second point that Paul makes in his argument here that is intended to engender humility. And that is, salvation precedes works. Salvation precedes works. Let that sink in for a second. Now look at Romans 4.9. For we say... Unlike the Jews, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. When was Abraham saved? After or before his circumcision? Now see, if, if, if we say 
after, well, then, then, it, then it proves the Jews' point. Abraham was saved based on circumcision. But if we say before, and God's declaration of Abraham's forgiveness came many chapters before his circumcision, well, then the grounds for boasting is just stripped away. He's got none. Romans 3.27 says, what then becomes of our boasting? Well, at that point, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So when did Abraham receive from God this legal verdict, this legal pronouncement? Righteousness. After or before his circumcision. Before. Emphatically before. Pride crushingly before. <laughs> you see how Paul is so absolutely fixed on this doctrine of justification by grace through faith alone? It, it's, it's because of the way this particular gospel doctrine crushes any possibility of boasting. And the crushing of boasting and the chopping down of religious arrogance and pride is necessary when one is aiming to mold a spiritual community characterized by humility. There's a third part of Paul's argument, and that is that salvation is based on Jesus' righteousness imputed, not infused. Now, I, I, I intentionally included this word infused. Because of the way we differ in our understanding of justification from our Catholic friends. In traditional Catholic, Catholic church doctrine, saved people, justified people are then infused. That's the word that is used. They are infused with the righteousness of Jesus. They actually become righteous. At least that's how I understand Catholic doctrine. But in our understanding of Paul, the righteousness of Christ is something credited to us. It's imputed, not infused. That is, we are counted as righteous. We are counted as if we are righteous, even though we aren't. And Abraham's another excellent case in point. Counted righteous, kept right on sinning. According to verse 5, And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as Righteousness. So, when we're saved, we don't become righteous. When we're saved, God counts us as if we are righteous. 
by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. It's his perfect life. It's Jesus' unwavering confidence in God's provident, uh, promises. It's Jesus' unwavering obedience. It's Jesus' guilt-atoning sacrifice. None of that is infused to, into us. It is credited to us as if it was us. And it's important because, friends, it's so that we it's so that we understand that we gain acceptance by God the only way it may be gotten. That is through faith and not works which we have done. And that is to engender humility. And this humility is intended to mold true, enduring unity for the glory of the Lord. It's a beautiful picture, revelation of Jesus. Now there's a second question that I want to raise. How does this gospel doctrine fuel the fire of missions? And for this I'm move a lot more quickly. How does the gospel fuel missions? I'm going to just mention three things briefly. First of all, justification by grace through faith produces a joy. It produces a joy in all that God is for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You, you see, the, the, the fuel that, that energizes mission is not, not this uh, kind of a teeth-gritting resolve, you know, we got to go out and do this. The, the, the fuel that energizes mission is joy. Joy. Joy in all that God is for us in Christ. Whatever it is that fills us with joy, whatever fills our hearts with joy, that's what comes out of our mouths. We, we, there's no stopping it when you're happy about it. We talk about what we're happy about. And such it is when our hearts are full of the joy of the Lord. Look again at verses 6 through 8. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous, righteousness apart from works. And then he he gives these two beatitudes from the Psalms. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And, and you see that word blessed, blessed? It's the word, you know this, it's the word also translated as happy. Happy is the person whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Happy is the person against whom the Lord does not count his sin. Happy is the person who walks out of the courtroom acquitted. Happy is the person whose million dollar fine has been canceled. Happy is the prisoner who's been liberated. Happy is the dying one who's healed. Happiness, happiness, joy. This is the joy that fuels movement and witness and Telling the story. It's this joy in sins forgiven freely by the grace of God, by faith in Christ, that fires mission. 
And so we pray, we pray with the psalmist, Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. So Holy Spirit, come and fill us with joy. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Because the Spirit will fill you with joy in your salvation. It's not joy in an adventure. Not joy in seeing the world. Not joy in going to some exotic place. And joy of doing some good. It's not even the joy of seeing somebody respond. It's the joy of the Lord. That fires this fuel that energizes mission. So fill us with joy in a Savior whose perfect life and sin-atoning death has been freely credited to me as if, as if I was the righteous one. Even though I'm not. Joy in that is the only joy that will not only build community, it's the only joy that's going to send out sustained wave after wave after wave of witnesses to the ends of the earth, even to their death if need be. Second, justification by grace through faith is inclusive then of all who believe. The, the way this doctrine fuels mission is, is that it just, you know, it just opens up the doors to who you're witnessing to. Every person that the Apostle Paul ever met was a potential brother or sister in Christ. Not just the Jews. Look at Verse 9 again, is this blessing then, is this happiness only for the circumcised? <laughs> Are the Jews the only one that get to be happy? Or also for the uncircumcised? Verse 11, the purpose, the purpose of all this was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So, you know, you know, Jews forcing Greeks to live like Jews before they could be saved, you know, this is like an unnecessary obstacle to faithful and fruitful mission. You know, the Jewish demand for circumcision before anyone could join the family was, let's just say, a limiting factor. But the potential of any ungodly person that they might be justified. Any ungodly person could be justified. <laughs> Counted righteous by God. Now, if, if they would just believe, open, this opened the way to proclaiming Christ throughout the Mediterranean. And well to the regions beyond, as well to every people group on earth. And so it does today. And then, justification by grace through faith gives rise to the obedience that glorifies God. There's an obedience 
that glorifies us and there is an obedience that glorifies God. And our justification with God, the fact that it is absolutely unmerited, it is unearned, but that does not mean that our obedience is optional. Now that may sound like a contradiction, but it's not. Look at verse 11 again. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, and here's the key phrase, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So so listen. Engagement in mission is is not a service that we render to God as a wage. There's just no work that we can do by which we put God in some place of obligation. But there is a necessary obedience. There's a way of walking that rises from a heart of faith and it results in God getting all the glory. And the way to view it, and we've said this, probably you've heard us say it before, is uh, the way we would view a patient with an illness. And this patient hears the good news that there is a most excellent and skilled physician uh, who knows how to deal with their illness, knows how to treat it in such a way, not that just that they're treated, but they are actually healed. Um, But there's a condition to the healing, and that is there's a prescription of medication and a prescription of therapy. And if this medication is taken faithfully, obediently, this illness will, in fact, finally be healed. But the patient, on taking some of this medicine, they just find it, yeah, it's unpleasant to their taste, you know, the pills get stuck in their throat, they want to puke up the medicine as it's going down and you know having started on on this therapy they find it difficult it's painful hurts a lot and soon because of the you know whether it's the unpleasant taste or the painful exercise they just stop taking this necessary medicine and stop engaging in this necessary therapy and of course then if the symptoms return with a vengeance and so they complain that they're not getting any better as the doctor had promised that they would get better, but this wise and expert physician probes the weary patient asking, so have you been taking the medication that I prescribed? Have you been faithfully walking in the footsteps of your therapy? And the patient replies, I haven't. That medicine tasted so wretched, it just about killed me. Hardly keep it down. And that therapy hurt so bad, I thought I was going to die. Couldn't put up with it anymore. So I just stopped. And the physician replies, but I promised you that if you took the medicine and if you kept up with the therapy, you'd be healed. Do you trust me? Do you believe I know what I'm talking about? I've seen your case hundreds of thousands of times. 
I promise you, if, if you trust me, obey my prescription, and then you will be healed. And if the patient does trust the wise and expert physician, and they do obey the prescription, and they do experience the healing, then who gets the glory? The one who took the medicine? The one who obeyed the prescription? No, it's the wise expert physician who receives all the honor and gets all the praise. Friends, this is the obedience that is of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations that Paul refers to in Romans chapter 1 verse 5. If it is an obedience that merits us nothing, but it is a faith, a faith that does justify. And this faith that justifies also engenders humility and gives rise to an obedience for the sake of the nations that gives glory to God. Let's pray together. And so, Lord, once again, we ask We ask that you would just put on display right here and now, put on display in the hearts of your people, magnify the truth that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And as, Lord, you cause faith to to rise and is begotten in our hearts, We pray that the glories of such a great salvation, full, free, would engender great joy in our hearts, that it would engender great gratitude, that it would engender great generous-hearted sacrifice, that it would engender true humility for the sake of a united spiritual community set ablaze to fulfill your purpose of being glorified as God in all the earth. And so we turn our eyes to you now, Lord Jesus, for such faith. We have none. We look to you. We look to you. We look to your wonderful face. We look to you, Lord, hoping that we behold and see you in such a way that our fears, our concerns, the weight of life, the weight of legalism, the weight of disunity, the weight of of a world torn apart, it would just grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. And during this holy week ahead, now we, we turn our eyes even forward to the hillside where justice and mercy embraced. Because it was there, O oh Lord, it was there that we believe that the Son of God gave his life for us. And our measureless debt was erased. Oh, may this get things 
done among us. Pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together.